0: Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 41. In this episode, it's going to be the first of a 10-part series I'm hoping to do over this year, because we're coming up to the end of the decade. I thought it'd be really fun to sort of go back through each year of the decade to see what events happened, what amazing albums came out there, kind of analyse any interesting trends in extreme metal that were going on at the time. With this one, we'll be starting in 2010, working through an order... And then when we get into early 2020, I hope to do a big Best Albums of the Decade kind of Top 20 show. Don't worry, we're not going to be doing only this the for the year. I'll be interspersing these with normal episodes, more focused on a couple of specific albums. So with 2010... I noticed something kind of incredible in the research of this, and I don't know how I'd never spotted it before, but this year was absolutely incredible for releases. So, so far, I've not got too deep into the research for every subsequent year. I've done a lot for 2011, 2012, and they are not a patch on what happened in 2010. So, apologies, this show might run quite long, because I think the best way for me to cover it, because there's too much I want to talk about, is I'm going to be doing a top 15, like my personal top 15 favourite albums, for all the subsequent shows, I'll be doing a top something. Depends how many good albums there were. So, I guess let's dive straight into some of the stuff that didn't make my top 15, but other like interesting releases and events that went on during 2010. So, one of the first albums that I was sort of really big into at this point um, was... As I say, big into... I enjoyed. Um, Atheist, a uh, famous old tech death band, reformed and released... Jupiter their only follow up to their original three albums. This album got like a lot of kind of critical heat at the time, but I always thought it was all right like it was quite fun had a really good album cover and yeah it sounded quite nice, but yeah, it's very much a divisive one. Cathedral released the guessing game, which was <laughs> it was a double album and suffered from classic double album album syndrome. some really great moments like the first two tracks, particularly I remember being amazing. And then loads of stuff later on that was just unlistenable. The final track, Journeys Into Jade, is so lyrically embarrassing, I just had to uh, ignore the song. My favourite Demonic Resurrection album, The Return to Darkness, came out, which is really solid, kind of, melodic black metal slash melodic death metal album. We covered these guys back on our Bloodstock episode. A band a lot of you, I imagine, will really enjoy, because they're huge. Uh, Ghosts debut, Opus, and Monop... Eponymous came out which I really enjoyed at the time but I've since kind of really wavered on Ghost and I didn't think like I thought this album was quite fun and inventive and all the subsequent releases didn't really do much to shake up the formula there's a couple I've covered before that came out at this point in time uh, like actually on really recent episodes like Demurg, Selectus Gambly, like the amazing kind of uh, melodic death metal supergroup. that one was excellent Hail of Bullets on Divine Winds another Really decent one. Grand Magus released Hammer of the North, which I have to say was the point where I sort of dropped off on Grand Magus. It, it's it's by no means a bad album. It just... It wasn't Iron Will, and Iron Will is an absolute masterpiece. Um, sort of in the kind of more extreme camp, Hour of Penance released Paradogma, which is a really solid slab of like modern technical death metal. In Mourning put out Monolith, which, again, a very atmospheric... Um, but very accomplished death metal album. An album I quite like, but I think a lot of you will probably hate, was uh, Monster Magnet's Mastermind, which is a, a return to form for Monster Magnet after three albums of absolute garbage. Like, this one was actually slightly psychedelic and inventive. Still not a patch on their, like, first three releases, but it, not bad. Another one we covered was, um, early in the year, was Nakmistium's Addicts uh, Black Metal Part 2, which was... A kind of slightly subpar follow-up to uh, um, Black Metal Part 1, Assassins, which was this really brilliant, complex-inventive black metal album. Addicts was far more stripped back, and it kind of it just wasn't as consistent. But had some really good stuff in there, and actually kind of tragic in hindsight, because the lyrics are very much about uh, Blake's problems with his kind of heroin addiction. And honestly, you can see the behaviours he's talking about in this album still being repeated to this day, so... In a decade, he, he didn't have, he never managed to get his shit together. Um, Nevermore released the Obsidian Conspiracy, which again was a very good album, but let down by the fact it followed a way better album. So this was the final Nevermore album. Um, the Follow up to this Godless Endeavor, which I think is an absolute masterpiece. Um, it's good, but it it fails on a few things. Like they've tried to be more rocky than um, they were on goddess endeavor goddess endeavor had these great like eight minute long songs whereas this is all kind of condensed four minute long tracks the production's a bit more sterile and some of War dane's lyric writing was just playing weird on this one like it just didn't click me in quite the same way I, st- it's still worth a listen if you if you're into nevermore i'd definitely give it a go but i just wouldn't hold it up as one of their best something i really love from this year actually and friends of mine um actually managed to get to the show um Believe Matt from Punishing Brutality was there. This is OPEF's uh live in concert at the Royal Albert Hall DVD. And like it's it's the best of the OPEF DVDs I've seen, I'd say it's the best, just because the idea is so monumental. So the, the it's them playing the entirety of their like probably most popular album, Blackwater Park, in full. And then a second half of the set, which is then playing one track from every other album. And, like, kind of weird choices of tracks. Like, I believe um, it's uh, Reverie, Harlequin Forest off of Ghost Reveries. is really not the obvious song to play. But really awesome. Just a really great deep dive for people who are real true fans of the band. Who know their deeper album tracks. And kind of get sick of what the problem with Modern Opeth live, at any rate, is of them just playing a really predictable set. When a band have that many great songs, it's really disappointing every time Get Demon of the Fall, Deliverance, um, Ghost of Perdition. the All great songs, but I've seen them live like 10 times now. Like I wish they would do more like this when they just played just weird cuts from their earlier material. but well, maybe that's just me. But yeah, definitely if you're into OPF, check out our DVD. It's a really incredible performance. Um, Orphan Land's The Never Ending Way of The All Warrior came out. This was... It's a pretty good Orphan Land album. It sort of signals their rise to fame, because Steve Wilson got involved uh, and did a lot of the the work recording it, so it's got a very slick production. It's just a bit overblown. Fifteen tracks is just too much, and I, I don't think it stands up to the quality of the previous album, The Ball. Or it's, and it's not quite as kind of insightful and tugging on the heartstrings as the... Uh, the follow-up album either um one that the into the combine group were very fond of as well at least some members were is parkway drives deep blue which so i'd never heard parkway drive somehow uh before this so i gave it a go and i think my opinion on it is going to just piss off everyone of i think it's fine like it didn't offend me i kind of like some of the swedish like melodic death metal leanings but then didn't like the breakdowny metalcore parts it's got a very slick production job, it, it's a it's a fine album, um, but yeah, very much, uh, it, it's not going to be for me, I'm just never going to be a metalcore fan, I've gone through a lot of what are seen as the classics of metalcore, and yeah, I, I guess I've got to accept that genre just isn't going to be for me. Now a couple I think are utterly incredible, and this speaks of how good the year was at least, I haven't managed to break my top 15. Um, there's The Secret, uh, the secret Solve et Caligua, um, which is, like, an absolutely brutal album. It is this terrifying journey into, like, distortion-heavy, almost black metal-slash-grindcore. See, so I'm starting this huge kind of wall of feedback, long, kind of, like, four-minute track um, that's just more or less just this one building theme. And then just bursts out into these like follow-ups of like ten really short, almost like minute-long bursts of just absolute furious noise. It is such an extremely aggressive album. the The album cover like is beautifully, evocative of what goes on on the album. Yeah, this this I'd highly advise picking up just because as well it's such a short listen, but like just so to the point. Um, yeah, on any given day, I think this could have broken the top ten just. Happens to not be something I've listened to a lot recently. Um, we got Agalok's Marrow of the Spirit, which is the kind of more brutal follow-up to their incredible Ashes Against the Grain. Um, First album to feature Aesop Decker actually playing drums in studio. He'd been their live drummer for years, but the the vocalist actually played drums on the earlier stuff. Um, Yeah, he's... The the, the performance is incredible, and it makes it so much more of a brutal album because Aesop's just a more accomplished... Faster, more brutal drummer. Um, bit more of a learning curve to get into, though, because it's by far their most extreme full length release. Um, we've got deep Profundis, Oblique Reflection, which is a great kind of melodic death doom album. Very long form songs, very impressively technical, incredible guitar solos, but tastefully done as well. And it's really cool, um like very high in the mix, fretless bass playing. they really like, really quite dominating a lot of the sound. But it's just, like, it's an interesting sound in Death Doom. I can't think of another Death Doom album with fretless bass. And it's probably my favourite of the Deep Profundus albums I've heard. Like, this is a lot more long-form than their newer stuff. They went a bit down a kind of more traditional death metal route, which is okay, but just I didn't love quite as much. Immolation released Majesty and Decay, which, of their modern albums, say probably their strongest. And if you don't know Immolation, they are one of the more inventive... um, Kind of death metal staples from the old days. Like they've kept, they've kept a unique sound. There's something very, very dark and ominous, while still being technical and in your face with these brutal low vocals. And if you're not if you're not aware of the band, I'd say Majesty and Decay is a really solid start point. Although any of their last five albums are pretty great. And finally, uh, one that I'd be surprised if anyone's heard of. This is Transcending Bazaars. The Misanthropes fable transcending bizarre i'm going up at the end because their name genuinely has a question mark at the end of it is a very avant-garde outfit from greece uh they sort of play a a mixture of kind of melodic black metal and then some more kind of prog rock influences this was their third and final album they later a couple of members reformed as hail spirit noir which was, I think, a more serious band, but I never got into quite as much. Transcending Bizarre was just a lot more fun. This album is really kind of catchy and all over the place. There's some great melodic lead playing on it. Really, really weird vocal deliveries, including, like, choirs of children on certain parts. And it's quite a cool concept album as well, about, like, sort of... a Like, a human is born of infinitely high intellect and... As such, follows the only trajectory you could imagine someone of that intellect following in, say, a kind of more modern society, of becoming an absolute impossible monster to try and write society's ills. It's, it's a really fun concept, and there's some amazing moments on this album. It just drags a little in the middle. Is the only thing that I'd say stopped it becoming, you know, one I really, truly love from this point in time. But definitely worth checking out, and Transcending Bizarre were a really interesting little idea. There were some other very notable things, sadly we have like couldn't go past the this particular year without mentioning. Um tragically, Dio, Pete Steele and Paul Grey of Slipknot all passed away this year. Um Dio particularly I remember like I think it was this year I had tickets to see Heaven and Hell perform with him fronting them at two festivals and absolutely out of the blue, like truly sad. And possibly the most tragic thing about Dio's death was the amount of Dio cover albums that were released straight afterwards. Now, I'm going to jump into um, some of the, like, essentially my top 15 uh, albums of the year. Uh, The overarching theme of this, I would say, seems to be really interesting moves forward in avant-garde sound. Like, lots lots of albums came out this year that tried something that... Basically brought to the mainstream, actually, an idea that had never been done before, and you—I think you'll see what I mean when we sort of jump into this list. A couple of these are just bands doing something we have seen before, but just to a really fucking high standard. But there, there is a lot here which are like albums that sort of almost topped a weird subgenre and have never been bested since, all because they were doing albums ideas that were just slightly out there. So firstly, I want to cover what I'd rate as the absolute best EP of the year, and possibly one of my favourite releases by this band, at least in terms of consistency. This was Flesh God Apocalypse's Mafia, uh, released on Trip Records. So Flesh God Apocalypse have been going a little while at this point. Uh, They formed in 2007, I believe 2009 their first album, Oracles, came out. So if you're aware of them now, they've become this kind of uh, orchestra-backed tech death band. Like, it's... Almost all their sound is built around this huge orchestral layer, completely synthesized, but you know, massive sounding, and with a lot of additional male and female, very operatic, clean vocals. Now, when they started out on Oracles, they weren't quite like that. They had, they were more just really aggressive tech death songs, very similar to related Bad Hour of Penance, but then with little bits of neoclassical stuff thrown in there. Like songs would stop, and you get a break of like um, some very Fancy-sounding piano playing, um, or you know, just a few little twists and turns like that. And Mafia kind of took up where Oracles left off, just but just honed the sound. They got more technical, more aggressive, more complex. So the album starts just at blistering pace with "Through Our Scars," which is just like the drumming for this entire song is this impossibly fast double kick work. All very triggered and polished sounding. That's Flesh God Apocalypse's style and always has been, always will be. But the the performance is incredible on the drums. And you've just got these absolutely shredding guitars and then the brilliant kind of free vocal attack of the drummer, lead guitarist and rhythm guitarist all have their own vocals. Uh, Rhythm guitarist uh, Tommaso Riccardi does the kind of lead core vocal he's got this quite understandable but still guttural deep and brutal vocals uh there's some really clever little ideas um like one of the first things that happens in a three-hour scars is something suddenly stops and you get a violin break and then the song picks up at massive pace again also this is the first album where they really introduced uh bass player paolo rossi's clean vocals he has this incredible high-pitched operatic voice which i think he did a little bit of an oracles but he actually uses it to do like the odd clean chorus on this and through our scars like after this kind of like two minutes of absolute punishment you get this brilliant high-pitched clean like operatic clean singing over like sweep pick guitars it, it's madness utter like you got to listen to it about four times to get your head around this um I remember as well friends saw them live around this point in time before they had any idea who they were and were all kind of like oh it was great but then there was these clean vocals that didn't make any sense to us which should now become a complete staple of their sound it's this yeah just initially way too much for people apparently um frost guards gives way to the longer track abyssal which is kind of almost more doomy influence like Although it starts off super kind of fast and aggressive, it has this long break in the middle where we just get a very sinister, slow guitar riff and kind of like the drumming is not the kind of wall-to-wall blast beats it's been up to this point. And over in that section, there is an audio clip of a speech by Toto Rini, who I think is some like truly awful... Um, Italian mob boss, and the translation of speech is like more or less like I think it's after he's been arrested, but him sort of saying how they don't need the governmental law in this country, he makes the law, he is the one who chooses who lives and dies proper apocalyptic stuff and really great subject for an album because they're an Italian band, and this is a really kind of brutal attack on the Italian mafia. And so that this song then builds back up out of this kind of doomy breakdown into like just utterly brutal death metal. And then there's a cutaway kind of at the end where the guitars sort of repeat but slowly fade out. And as that fades out, a kind of synthesized string quartet bursts into life over this fading guitar. And then there's a huge drum fill and we're into the third proper track of the album, Conspiracy of Silence. Conspiracy of Silence, far more in the vein of the first one. It's you know, kind of... Brutal tech death with moments of beautiful clean vocals, some really fancy lead work, bass is a little bit buried, but I-, I think it's hard not to have an instrument slightly buried when the drum sound is as huge and in your face as this. So, so the album's mainly fe- well, the EP sorry is mainly themed around these three tracks, but then we get um, a cover of At the Gates' "Blinded by Fear," which is pretty uh, like it's really fun. I really like it, but it's essentially pointless so the only changes they've made to the original is the you know we are blind um that, that kind of spoken word intro you get they do that as the um as the bass players like clean hugely bombastic operatic voice leading into it and then the album like then the song just has the double kicks turned up to 11 so if you ever wanted blinder by fear but with more double kicks and slightly deeper vocals there you go. And then the EP ends with a three minute outro uh, of Mafia, which is much like how Oracle's ends, just a piano, like a piano piece outro, played by Francesco Farini, who is at this point not in the band, but would later join the band as a full time member on the next album. It comes out next year, actually, uh, 2011. Um, as the guy who's mainly responsible for programming the orchestral parts and adding his own actual, real piano parts, and one of the rare times I've actually seen someone bringing a piano out with them on tour. Uh, yeah, very good pianist, but uh, I feel this this ending actually adds very little, especially after a cover it's not really part of the flow of the album, it sort of just feels like a, an additional idea tacked on. He's definitely better used in future albums. But still, one of my absolute favourite Fresh Call Apocalypse releases, just because the consistency, it's consistency of that first, like... 20 minutes of music those first three songs is some of the strongest work they ever did and like to some extent I do wish they'd go a bit more back towards the tech death because with some of their newer more orchestral stuff there's so much of a focus on the orchestration and there's so much of a battle between the sounds because there's so much to capture there in an album that some of the guitars get a bit lost and their guitar work is actually really brilliant. So, for a few of the albums we were covering today, I've gone into too much detail with them before, so I'll probably skip through them quite quickly. So, number 15 on my top 15 of 2010 is The Mead of The Murder of Jesus the Uh Me and Rob covered this one, like, although we covered the follow-up in more detail, I think we kind of largely went over The Mead sound, so I'll be fairly brief about this. This is a weird ass album. Like it's very inventive, avant-garde, black metal with some incredibly out there influences. Like one of the songs generally breaks down into what I can only describe as like Monty Python style song, like in the middle of this really raw, uh, all over the place black metal. There's some really great stuff about Mies of As The albums are very rough and ready, like, there's a lot of great ideas being thrown at the wall, but it all sounds very much like rough recordings. There's some incredible moments to this, particularly Track 9, Genesis of Death, has this incredible, like, instrumental build-up where it goes through all these different genres into this amazing, um, kind of subtle, melodic guitar solo, and finally into this great choral, like, explosion at the end, and... It's brilliant. One of the biggest problems with this album is that's where the album should have ended. Like, this is this absolute build up to a really interesting ending. Like, lyrically, it's really appropriate as well, where it does this kind of clever metaphor about the resurrection of Jesus being like the kind of wave of destruction that spread out over the Middle East of the wars based around Christianity. But then there's three slightly uninspired tracks that follow it, and it's slightly tarnishes the album still a really interesting listen and definitely one i advise people give a go a lot of you will not get it at all and that's totally fine this is very strange music but very inventive number 14 is one of the albums which i wouldn't say is the most inventive but it's doing a lot within a kind of strict subgenre. so this is defeated sanity's chapter of chapters of repugnance uh released on Tip records it's the third album by this german like brutal death slash tech death powerhouse. This album is utterly crushing. It's so to the point and aggressive. Uh, It really gives me kind of vibes of, say, Once Was Not era Cryptopsy. So we've got these kind of super low, completely impossible to understand guttural vocals, constant blasting, like, 90 miles an hour, double kicks everywhere kind of drum work, really kind of chugging heavy guitar work, but then really clear over-the-top bass playing, like really jazz-influenced stuff. And there's a lot, much like that Cryptopsy album, there's a lot of jazz influence, like little fills and flourishes on this. So while you still get that like, slamming heaviness, this couldn't really be considered slam because there's just too much technicality. I'd say it's really got an advantage over, it, actually, even stuff like, um, say you listen to like Modern Dying Fetus, they have these great technical moments interspersed between the kind of more brutal, more to-the-point brutal moments. But with Dying Features, it's very much like, here's a tech bit, here's a brutal bit. With Defeat Sanity, you just get little flourishes of technicality cutting through the brutality at random moments. They, they're never kind of expected, and they never continue for any length of time you're, you're kind of expecting them to. There's great little things the drums do that just just slightly accentuate things and keep them really interesting. There's loads of works with like tiny little splash symbols, just making weird little chiming effects just to throw something else in there. Uh, the aforementioned bass work by Jacob Schmidt is fucking incredible. Um, just really, really mind blowing stuff. And and there's even like a guest violin player, because actually this album, despite its kind of slam nature, is really atmospheric like it really sets up this kind of nasty foreboding atmosphere and there's lots of little breaks um you know tiny little sampled things like mainly sounds of like torture and like horrible like screaming howls of individuals in pain the album cover really is evocative of this it's very very much reminds me and i think it's directly inspired by Autopsies, Acts of the Unspeakable, where it's like a load of these kind of hairless white figures being put through utterly hideous methods of torture. And if you bought the CDI like I have, you get a nice giant fold out version of that poster if you want to never have friends come around your house again. Really cool stuff, though. Like, you know, it's brutal music, it should be. It should be making my skin crawl like this does. Yeah, it's a very short album, only half an hour long, and it's perfect. Like, it's just so to the point. Nine tracks are all about three minutes. are all just really, really contained. There's no excess fat on this at all. The guitar tone is just perfect because it doesn't do that thing of being too polished. Still a bit muddy, still a bit horrible and nasty, and everything about this just, just has enough nastiness to make it a really Brutal bleak sounding album. <laughs> So, in stark contrast to that, at number 13, we have Solifeld's Noren Liviskunst Levis- uh, on indie recordings. So, Solifeld are one of those myriad of Norwegian avant garde, like post slash ex black metal bands. Um, this is their seventh album of eight. They've been around since 1995. So, these guys have a lot of experience under their belt at this point. Sonifald are more or less a two-piece project, with Cornelius Jackhelm doing vocals, guitar, and bass, and Lazare Nedland doing vocals, keyboards, and drums, um, so we've got a very much a uh, like two-way split of duties. And there's a lot of variation going on this album. It's fun. You can see there's a slight foot in the black metal camp. Like, there's moments of real black metal riffing. Like, uh, tracks like Waves Over Valhalla really has, like, hints of that. There's certainly kind of Blast beaty work in places on the album. But there's a lot more kind of rock-inspired in places. Like, it's a nice, clean production. The vocals... um, Are a mixture of kind of screams and very odd clean vocals. They're more traditional clean vocals. I'd be very hard pushed to tell you who is doing what on this, Um, but there there is some really truly bizarre stuff here. So uh, I was originally got into this album after hearing the third track, whose name I won't even attempt to pronounce, which um, features guest vocals from and jet Kudrolskrud, I completely fucked that up. But the the vocalist who is on Demi um not latest, but previous album, who's like the kind of very high-pitched, clean vocals, and she does a performance on this track, which is somewhat reminiscent of a toddler having a tantrum, but it's sort of brilliant. It took me about 10 listens to get my head around, because initially I was just like, what the f- fuck is this but then you like so much of this album and i haven't actually delved backwards through their castle because i don't know how much this is true of older solifeld stuff but so much of this album is like it will slowly work its way in. you're like oh no this this is kind of brilliant but it's so out there that track's probably the most hard to digest but you've got moments later on one of the one of the later songs has a kazoo on it but is used to great effect. And it's this brilliant song which moves between kind of fast, proper extreme metal moments and then slowly descends into these kind of brilliant kind of keyboard-led passages that are way more kind of strange prog rock. It's a very varied and exciting album. Not all the moments are as good as each other. There's some that I enjoy a lot more, but I think for an album this weird and out there... Everyone's going to have the parts they really love and parts that kind of drag their feet a bit more. It's one I'm really having like struggling to define the sound of because it's just got so many elements here. It has these kind of bits that are like modern black metal, but then bits that are far more kind of just simplistic guitaring with really beautiful, clean vocals. So we have a couple of guest female vocalists on it. We there's um there's little bits of kind of very um, melodic sax playing and actually so this is going to be a running theme of 2010. This seemed to be the year where saxophone got properly accepted into the the metal mainstream and like you look at I say our our lists of the great albums from 2018. Sax was just such a huge part of it. I mean you like Rivers and Nile got huge off of that really cool sax work in the latest album. But it's it's albums like this where people were really experimenting, and a lot of it in Norway that I think really paved the way for this. And it, it's brought some really interesting developments in the genre. Maybe Sullafald weren't a big thrust of that. I don't think many people know this band all that well. But this is a really solid album. It's ten tracks and they're all they're all these kind of smaller little experiments. Like there there's some that don't work as quite as well as others, as I say, but they're all kind of quite unique ideas. They all have quite a unique atmosphere. It's a very varied and interesting album. It's a bit under an hour, so it's, it doesn't outstay. It's welcome. Um, these guys do, despite being a two-piece, do perform as a live act. All the members of it in vain, I think, are essentially their live backing band. They from play live as a six-piece. And the aforementioned kazoo is used when playing uh Vidi e Verdi, which is absolutely incredible track. I think probably my personal highlight of the album. But I'd highly advise going and checking this one out just because it's so bloody out there.
1: Wir are weg. in Hover.
0: So now we start approaching the point where I was really battling with what order to put these in. All 12 of these albums following, from now on, I would say I would hold up as absolute essential listening if you're a fan of the given sub-genre they're in. At number 12, we have the debut of "E Parister de Menez from Century Media Records. So for those who don't know, Tripticon basically with a band that came out of the fallout of the Monotheist lineup of Celtic Frost. Basically, Tom Tom Gabriel Warrior had this kind of real big fallout with Celtic Frost at the time, disbanded the band after they reformed for Monotheist, and picked up three young musicians um, and formed Triptychon and pretty much continued off where Monotheist started. Monotheist was a big departure from any sound Caltech Frost had done before and honestly if you go through Caltech Frost's catalogue almost every album is a completely different sound to the last they're a very intelligent and experimental band but not in a technical manner me and Rob covered them at length I think back at like episode 10 or something both huge fans of that band and both huge fans of Trypticon actually so the core of Triptychon's sound are these huge sprawling doomy epics based around this gigantic guitar tone. There's something about the way Tom Gabriel Warrior or Tom Gabriel Fisher plays guitar that is incredible. He's by no means a technical guitarist, but it's the way he hits his notes. Like, it makes the sound that he's just soul-crushing. There's no one else that has a guitar tone quite like him. Now, his backing band had a huge amount as well. We get uh, V-Santura, who I believe is in, I'm not sure if... No, he doesn't front, but he's in Dark Fortress, who are a kind of a well-known Swiss black metal band, who, very good. um, Their vocalist is the vocalist of Alkaloid. He adds, on top of Tom's varied kind of, his grunts and clean vocals, he adds this really harsh, more traditional black metal scream. It's just another texture in there, and the bass and drum work is fucking huge in this album. Again, nothing too flashy, nothing too technical but just everything sounds massive and what really gets you this album is the full like wealth of despair and that's what you want with doom you want something that the proper heavy death doom kind of stuff you want something that makes you just feel utterly crushed like plowed over by this like steamroller of emotions there is so much so much like soul and passion and everything going on here the lyrics seem to be this really deeply personal um but very poetic uh works by tom like abyss within my soul my pain the prolonging all seem like these hugely personal and just very upset bits of work like this is an album that really takes his time as well so It starts with, I think it's about three minutes before anything comes in beyond just this one really hefty bit of guitar work, which starts out with this long ring distortion thing that brings up into a riff, then the drums and bass comes in and it all just gets a bit more, it all just finally coalesces into a real song. And This is the kind of album we're talking about where it opens with an 11 minute long track, which... You know, takes forever to get into position. Like, the 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 overrams nine songs is almost 70 minutes long. And it is just... These songs that hugely take their time in just building this epic, epic atmosphere. There's fun little additions to it as well. We've got some some clean female vocals in places, which, you know, just slightly change the mood. Like, very high-pitched, very melancholy still, but kind of adds a weird little bright spot on the album, which stops it just being entirely one feel one emotion throughout there's some additional um, violin and piano as well just very very subtly used for little extra bits of atmosphere the other thing i want to mention about this though is is it isn't just this kind of purely bleak sound there is there's is great riffs in here they say um the real kind of highlight of the album is the 20 minute long closer the prolonging which essentially is a build up to this huge monumental slab of groove in the middle. Like there, There's a riff that comes in in the centre of this song that gives me goosebumps every time. It is just... It's the payoff you've been wanting the whole album and it, it gives it to you just in spades at this point. And while the whole lyrics are this, like, completely over-the-top dive into Tom Warrior's hatred for someone, this, like... Sort of how it's saying his life will progress because this this character he hates is failing. It it is so visceral and angry. Tom's vocals are incredible for that song. I love his delivery, his very unique scream. It still features, you know, his classic. Huh, I can't do the noise, but you you know the the Tom Warrior noise. Um, but then like he does these more kind of like sort of clean to spoken word bits, which really add another another texture, another tone. There's so much great use of distortion and feedback like long moments where guitars won't be playing a note they'll just be building up in intensity while something else is taking place it's an amazing album i i don't know whether i would say this is better than the follow-up i'd say the highs of this one are probably the best stuff they've ever written but it is a touch overblown in places like as brilliant as the prong is it kind of continues on for seven minutes it doesn't really need at the end which, like Once it's hit that main payoff, uh, like 10 minutes in, you kind of got what you needed out of it. But then the follow-up doesn't quite have the same highs. They've got a new album coming out this year, at last. It's been a real long wait, um, so I'm very excited about this. And it's, it's an album as well I'd, I'd highly advise actually get yourself a physical copy of. Because much like Monotheist, uh, the final Celtic Frost album, there's so much great stuff to go with it. It's a cover artwork done by the legendary artist H.R. Geiger, who actually became a close personal friend of Tom's because they are both incredibly weird, depressed men. Um, Tom Warrior actually read a eulogy at uh, Geiger's funeral. Um, but yeah the the package is amazing so the cover the cover art is this beautifully twisted complex Geiger piece and then each song um like each page of the lyric book has details about the song where you've got the lyrics and you've got all the personnel involved in it like so there's a lot of guest musicians throughout this album and then a a kind of a little piece written by Tom about where this song came from so you can see kind of how deeply personal this is and it just really works to to accentuate the um the feel of this um, this album <laughs> The eleventh studio album by a band I'm incredibly fond of. This is Enslaved's Axi- *Axiom Axioma Ethica Odini. Sorry, I messed that one up quite a bit. Um, released on Indie Recordings, this um, album very much follows in the vein of a lot of previous Enslaved albums. So, Enslaved have been around since like the very early '90s. I think formed about '91. And have been massively influential since their demos. Although be- I think because they were never quite as involved in any of the controversies of a lot of the Norwegian black metal scene, um, they never quite got the acclaim your Dark Thrones, Mayhem's, Emperor, etc. have. But they they came into the game I'd say as an amazing, fully formed package. Like their very earliest work is incredibly progressive and strange even in the burgeoning field of black metal. So they did a lot of albums in that more kind of what used to be termed Viking metal vein, which not you kind of Amon an arm off sound, it's more this kind of Norwegian folk influenced black metal. Um, then they started bringing in more and more psychedelic elements. And then around, um, around the time of their eighth album, Issa, the lineup solidified, and we'll have the same lineup for about six albums after that point. And this sound sort of came together in this kind of avant garde, progressive black metal. And they sort of fall in a very similar vein from Issa, I'd say, all the way through to Rittier, In Times. Even the latest album, E, still very much in this vein. Axioma sits right in the middle of this. So I think at this point, with with the band this was their fourth album without a lineup change uh, we had rune and vertebrae before it which i think both are utter masterpieces iso is truly brilliant as well this one's brilliant rithe is absolutely incredible as well the only one i'm less fond of is in times um but this was a, this was a bad at the top of their game, like really incredible stuff. The big change, I'd say, between this album and the previous one is the songs got a bit longer. We're going for more seven-minute-long tracks, a bit more time to progress and it's a bit more heavier and to the point as well actually even with the longer songs, so it's like more riffs whereas vertebrae would do a lot of slowly building up one idea this is throwing a lot more stuff at you like particularly a track like giants in the middle of this album is just loads of really great riffs another thing we get a lot more of on so the band started off with bass player girtle doing most of the vocals he's a very accomplished flat metal vocalist. with definitely a, a style that is unique to him. I really I really like the sound of Gerzel's vocals. It's very throaty, like almost gargled noise. He's one of those vocalists. It sound it sounds so much like he must be hurting himself to produce this sound. But you know, he's been doing it for like fifteen odd albums now, so don't really think there's any any problem there. Um but also keyboard player um Herman Herbrand Larson uh does a load of extra clean vocals and he becomes more and more a big part of the band like on this album his clean vocals in almost every song like the vocal work is almost split directly in half so we have a lot of change offs so you have a heavy riff with Gertl doing vocals then a um a lighter riff with Herbrand doing his vocals on it um Guitarist Ice Dale gets a bit more in the picture, whereas on previous albums he's had, like, a solo per album. On this album he gets, f- like, a bit more time to shine, and Ice Dale is an immense shirtless show-off, but he can write a very good solo. If you go back to, say, uh, Ground from the previous album, the solo in that is utterly beautiful. It's one of my favourite guitar solos I think I've ever come across. It's, it's fucking incredible. This album doesn't have any solos that are quite that brilliant, but they're really good. And I think using him a little bit more was totally reasonable. Having a a musician like that in the band and underusing them would be criminal. The real highlight for me of this album, though, is and end of a lot of their stuff um, is drummer Cato. Like his performance is incredible. He is such an inventive drummer. His fills are so memorable. Is you know it's got that real kind of late like sort of middle period OPEF vibe where you just the drum performance alone would make a good song. Like, it, it, I can just listen to him endlessly. Shame he's actually quit the band now, so I, I have no idea what that's going to do to the sound, but, you know, they've survived line changes before. So, Enslaved has always been a project of Gertel, vocals and bass, and Ivor Bjornsson on rhythm guitar. Um, I think Ivor takes a big part of the writing, although maybe in the early days it was a bit reversed because he's a lot younger than Gürtel. Famously, they met... Uh, when Gertl stage-dived at a gig and knocked out the, the at the time, tiny Ivor and, you know, looked after him, <laughs> made sure he was alright after this, and they became close friends ever since, and formed this great band. Those two have always been the core of it, then we have the other five members making up the rest of the lineup, and their sound is just, it's always remained unique, because it, it does seem to be this almost perfect melding of a true love of 70s prog, with this Norwegian black metal sound. So much like how Opeth's that melding of, you know, out there 70s prog with, and 60s prog as well actually, with death metal. This is, and so I've always felt was more or less the same idea, just changed up for black metal. And there's just so many little touches, like the prog psychedelic atmosphere really works with black metal. It just makes for a very deep and interesting sound. This album as well really does well with varying things up, so... With the first track, Ethica Odini, we get a lot of very clean, very beautiful moments. Bits almost virginal, like almost too syrupy. But then, say, in the middle of the album, we've got Giants, which just starts with this monumentally heavy riff. This super slow, like massive slide on the guitar. The sounds like the, you know, the slow trudging of giants across the scenery. It's a very huge and powerful song. And then we have a song like Night Sight towards the end, which is way more. Just beautiful and melodic, and then like Lightning, which the final track which goes all over the place. It's so inventive and creative, this album. All the kind of playing is mind blowing, but not mind blowing for the sake of it. It's all it's still restrained despite its complex technicality. These days, I don't know where this stands to me in terms of enslaved albums. Back at the time when it came out, I was truly obsessed with it but i feel it's one of those albums like i may have just played too many times and possibly ruined forever like um I, whereas like rune and vertebrae still give a lot of time to this one i don't go back to quite as much but that might just be my own doing it'd be any of you out there who are really being enslaved fans would be interested to know where like what do you rate in their catalogue because honestly of their i think about 14 albums now they're all kind of great uh the mix is done by Jens Bogren, who, just, the guy's done so many albums now, and you, you know you're going to get a solid job out of him, and it, this album sounds beautiful, it's it's very clean and clear without being overproduced, it's still, Enslave always somehow managed to capture that feel of a band playing live. Um, which is what you want, because they, they do try and pull off a lot of their music live. Unfortunately, I haven't got to see them headlining that many times, so I kind of get the same tracks every time. But, yeah, they—they. They, it feels like any track in this album could totally be reproduced live. The keyboard work's really good as well. It's, it's very much engaging the best of that kind of 70s keyboard work, which is subtle, interesting tones that just add a bit more to the guitar work, rather than, you know, that kind of over-the-top, Symphony X power metal, like how much can we whittle on this Casio keyboard tone? Another thing is, like a, a real standout about this album actually is I feel Girtel's vocals have come into their own. They're really, they are so much more brutal and heavy on this album. He's doing a lot more low, low work whereas previously he's always kind of been the higher register. And yeah, his like his vocals have just kind of gone from strength to strength uh, across the albums. Not that they weren't bad to start with, but yeah, just real standout work on this. His bass tone sounds great as well. Again, not a technical player because he's doing so much of the kind of vocal work, but it's just the, the tone really cuts through on this. The guitar work, all incredible. Yeah, it's, it's just a really excellent, excellent album. If you haven't given this a go, I'd say possibly the real start point for Enslave might be this release, this or maybe Room. <laughs> So next up at number 10 we have yet another avant-garde black metal release. I think I might be becoming predictable. Why uh, did to change this? Maybe 2014 is just going to be entirely slam albums. Um, so this is a like a, quite a weirdly unknown band, but one I'm very fond of. This is the Australian uh, free piece Stargazer and their second album, A Great Work of Ages, released on Profound Law Records. So these guys, for, I think, have been going since like about 95, which is incredible considering they've only managed to get three albums out, but if you look at the kind of um kind of history of each member they're involved in so many other bands you can kind of see why uh they might not have time to focus on stargazer so stargazer's kind of unique take on black metal is it very much sounds like a power trio playing live so we've got bass guitar and vocals uh done by but he calls himself The Great Righteous Destroyer. Um, guitar and vocals by the Serpent Inquisitor, and drums by Selenium. Um, with the sound, what they do is you've got the very traditional riffy guitarist, kind of drummer just locking down the rhythm section, a lot of double kick work with nothing too flashy, then ridiculously guitar bass. Like the bass guitar in this is right front and centre in the mix and doing incredibly complex interesting work throughout the guitar gets moments here and there to shine but mainly it's all about this lead bass with the guitars just playing the riffs and the riffs are quite quite standard black metal but the weirdness of the bass playing and the way the bass playing is used really I'd say elevates this into being something totally different. Also, just the idea of black metal with a single guitar is very rare these days. Like I don't think any of the other black metal bands we're covering use just one guitar throughout. These songs are quite condensed and to the point. It's like an eight track album under forty five minutes, like it's just a load of cool riffs, awesome like kind of verging on Shreddy, but very melodic bass playing. And both the guitarist and bass player introduce their own vocals into the mix. Um, and the vocals actually are another departure from the usual in black metal. You've got some of the high-pitched, raspier stuff. But a lot of it's like really guttural, almost death metal vocals. And a lot of this could um, could be down to the bass player, um, whose real name, uh, Damon Good, is also the frontman and founding member of Mournful Congregation, the very over-the-top epic Funeral Doom band. Like, Morphal Congregation's Book of Kings is one of those ridiculous albums that has a 30-minute-long song on it. Really decent stuff, and Incubus of Calm that came out last year was really solid. Like, although I do think I prefer Stargazer and his pace work in Stargazer to his work in Morphal Congregation, but, you know, for, for whatever reason, bass-heavy black metal will never be as big as Funeral Doom. Already a tiny genre. Also, both uh, guitarist and bass player in the band Cauldron Black Ram and Martyr both of which I have not actually spent much time on like I really do need to delve into that because they're probably equally interesting projects. Um, A lot of the lyrical content seems to be that very kind of chaos magic-y, completely impossible to understand weirdness The, the song titles are incomprehensible to me uh the morbid sliver and the sinner Slough, the formless face of the timeless facelessness uh pipes of the psychomantis like it, it's all over the place but what what you have here is a really beautiful well constructed whole the the songs have a lot of variation despite their short kind of nature uh say the aforementioned pipes has this amazing breakdown in the middle where uh, a lot of the heavier riffing gives way to this like gentle, clean go- tone guitar and this super melodic bass solo, but that that's all then built up back into like proper blasting black metal fury. It's a really you know all over the place varied release. It's got this lovely kind of rough and ready tone to it, like the guitar is. The guitar really does just feel like a live guitar. Like I wouldn't be surprised if this album was recorded with the three of them in studio and then just had vocals overdubbed. I, I imagine there's a little bit of overdubbing of a second guitar, but none of this album would not work live as a free piece. Sadly, then being Australian, I don't think I'll ever actually see this band perform live, and nor many, because it's a nightmare trying to tour the Europe or uh, or America for Australian bands, especially ones as kind of unknown as these guys in terms of their catalog i i, I find it hard to place actually because the the first album uh, a screen that tore the sky is brilliant but even more raw and then the the follow-up to this is more polished but and possibly more creative they all have really cool album covers as well like there's like this one's um, a lot of stuff based around uh, that kind of nautilus uh winding shell shape uh like there's just so much cool stuff this band like the imagery is incredible oh yeah the follow-up's called emerging to the boundless so more of impossible uh, kind of chaos magic kind of stuff but really cool and interesting and they've got their own take on it these guys don't sound like another band so i'd definitely give them a go the thing to remember is Gotta listen to them on speakers with good bass because, unfortunately, the way this is mixed with being so bass guitar heavy... there I remember there was a rip of it on YouTube, Age's ago I found, where it just sounds like shit because it's got no bass in it. And, like, with that element taken away, it, it, the sound kind of falls apart, which is interesting and might be why bands don't rely on this sound more often because it doesn't survive shit speakers. Which you know most black metal can get away with because of its kind of raw nature, or even actually in you're slavery, we you're previously covered can get away with that because it's so beautifully polished. And even if you lose a bit of the low end of it, the kind of the kind of keyboards and guitars carry those arms so nicely. Whereas the guitar doesn't carry this so much because it is a backing instrument. <laughs> because i am so deeply predictable this is ludicrous the tenant release really on profound lore so Ludacra, are kind of one of those bands that are like a super group in hindsight it's um i think mainly written by john cobbett of hams misfortune vol uh ex lord weird slalf egg um on drums we have aesop decker of Agalok, um forementioned actually second sort of appearance in this uh for this sort of summary of the year. He's a very busy man. Um Ross Sewage on bass, who's known for his work with Impaled, um Exhumed, and many other kind of death metal bands, but also live bass player for Wolves in the Throne Room, and the lineups completed by Laurie Sue, Shanneman on vocals, and Chrissy Carfer on guitar and a little bit of backing vocals. Strange is one of the rare projects where Ross doesn't do his trademark toilet vocals that really low, super guttural bellow, because it probably wouldn't fit here. Ludicrous, I've heard, describe their sound as grey metal, which is stupid, hilarious, but kind of apt. Essentially what they do is they have a black metal sound which is quite removed from a lot of black metal. It's very melancholy, is the real, the overall emotion I get from it, is a lot of kind of overwhelming sadness it's got more in common with like triptychon in places in in that vein but then also john cobbett's lead playing as it does with any of his projects hugely influences it because he has this kind of very 70s influence heavy metal guitar style so there's a lot of kind of flashy beautiful lead work but the album's put together in such a way this doesn't dominate it's not like suddenly over the top guitar solo just neatly sits in there. Um, Laurie has this amazing scream as well. It's very, it's it, it like sort of sits really nicely in the mix. It's kind of uh, this almost sounds like an insult, but it's kind of transparent in a way. It sort of you, yeah. It, it's it's a very strange sound, but it sounds really pained and just like what you want from black metal. It sounds really real. Uh, and then there's moments of clean vocals by both her and Christie, which are equally kind of slightly more background, more more melancholy, more, like, they're just part of the overall sound. Aesop's drum performance is this very natural sound, like, he's not the most technical player. No one in this band is the most technical player, and I don't think that's what they're striving for. They said what they really tried to do, because this is their fourth and final album. The guy's formed... In 98, and split the year after this, 2011. And they'd been on their previous album, they'd attempted to capture what they do live because they're a very good live band. They wanted to recreate that to some extent. And so, in studio, they near enough played most of this live and then just overdubbed the vocals and some of the solos later. But despite the fact, despite the fact the performance is incredible, like, Aesop's drum work is fucking amazing. Like when you hear him on his podcast and stuff, he. Very much talks himself down but the guy is an absolutely incredible musician these songs are all sort of long and atmospheric but with huge amounts of variance there's really light melancholy moments but there's these still heavier blasting bits they sit in that interesting bay area scene that kind of out there bay area scene that sort of has appeared over the last 20 25 years where they, I've sort of listening to an that's sort of saying they are an interesting thing where they just play with bands they think are good. It's not, you don't get these lineups where they're all, you know, corpse-painted dudes aping the sound from Norway. They're, they're playing with punk bands. They're playing with weird progressive bands. You know, the kind of sub-Rosa types. They're like Hammers of Misfortune is such a kind of alien project to this, but yet you can see the, the thread between them if you know both bands. Like John Colt's guitar playing, you can kind of recognise in whatever like, band he's in. I mean, I definitely want to dedicate an episode to him at some point in the future because I think Hammers and Misfortune were a completely incredible act, or still are. Uh, Vol is this really mind-blowing project that I really hope keeps going. And Ludicro was a, a really unique voice in black metal. It's nothing completely off the wall and out there. It's just slightly the way songs are constructed are really unique. There's, there's just something they they found something unique to do in black metal even as late as twenty ten. Like and that's that's really cool. And just this album is incredibly incredibly sad and strange. Um the the artwork for it was all done by Ross. Like it's the the album cover is very strange. So the album's called the tenant and the front cover is a picture of a door but like kind of a door just mounted in nothing on top of like kind of water it's yeah it's a lot of very odd imagery but it it really fits with their there's the like actually kind of modern sound as well there's something quite modern about the way they sound whereas a lot of black metal seems to be trying to throw back and ape something that happened 10 years before this does seem very forward thinking and, and if you particularly enjoy the sound like sadly this band's come to an end but uh Laurie and Chrissy have since formed Ailes, who had now out in 2018, which was really decent, which is very much taking off where Ludicra left off, whereas the rest of the members of the band are all doing their own things, like Aesop's in Carada and A Million and One other projects, John Cobbett's in a lot of bands, although I think because he's had kids recently, he's not been quite as productive as he has been in previous years, and Ross was like on the latest Exhumed album, which is probably the best Exhumed album they've ever done, so... Like, these people are all so well involved in the scene, even if ludicrous kind of come to an end. So, number eight, we have Death Spill uh, album Paracletus, which uh, I kind of more went into their previous one, Facet, etc., etc., etc. Paracletus was really good because where the previous one had been this great, sprawling, impenetrable, evil sound, in this they kind of focus down, the songs are more, more catchy, to be honest, although. I kind of played one of these when I was on Into the Combine trying to get Young James into Black Metal. And in my head, it's really catchy and kind of to the point and memorable. But to someone who doesn't know, Black Metal apparently it's still completely impenetrable. So uh, they definitely hadn't sold out on this album. But there's, there's far more passages that are kind of beautiful and melodic, whereas the previous album is just a complete assault on the senses. I'm not sure which of these two I prefer. They're both really brilliant albums. And then after that, we get another sort of black metal adjacent album at number seven is Dawnbringer's Nucleus, which I went into great detail three episodes back. This is um, uh, an amazing project where essentially one guy has put together this sound that is sort of tinged with black metal, but essentially kind of really out there, progressive heavy metal, and got this really kind of cool old school vibe to it while still being really clear and just just inventive like it's new and inventive while aping the old days i don't know quite how it works but yeah it's an incredible album and, and one although i got into back when i came out in 2010 i still play so much to this day so moving on to number six something that has absolutely nothing to do with black metal at last uh this is actually yeah some of you might be surprised i put this quite as high as i did but Personally, this album that's definitely had a huge effect on my life, and I really do love this band. Even if I'm not as into their new direction, this is actually the debut by the British band Haken. Uh, Aquarius release on Century Records. So I got into Haken back when their demo uh, "Into the Fourth Dimension" came out, or "Into the Fifth Dimension." One of those. Um, and the demo was this really cool but all over the place like it sounds rough as fuck and all the songs are like almost this cut and shut thing of like here's a bit that sounds like coheed and cambria now here's a bit that sounds like death metal now here's a bit of circus music and it's just like loads of these unique ideas kind of jammed together but in a way where it's still just about flowed it was really interesting and all over the place like great fun album then aquarius like i think they sort of said they were going to record a lot of ideas from that demo and then decided none of it was good enough and basically threw the whole thing out. Although have, on and the retrospective EP, actually reimagined a lot of those songs from the demo since, because obviously the fans like me really loved it. But with the album, they completely try and make this together sound. So it's this huge, sprawling 70-minute line epic, and in true prog-rock fashion, it is a concept album about some parents who give birth to a mermaid and then have to let the mermaid go and then it's a concept album about a mermaid i mean it's so ridiculous so prog rock and so brilliant so at the time i think i'd always described haken sound to people as essentially is dream theater like modern dream theater if they focused on melody and songwriting rather than doing those extremely technical extremely pro- progressive extremely boring solo sections you know those bits in a the dream theater song where the keyboard and the guitar will whittle back and forth for like seven minutes. Haken, while they do have solos, they do have fancy keyboard work, there is a lot more focus on riffs and great big building songs, songs that go through hundreds of strange avant-garde movements, but then come back to stuff that's like a catchy rock chorus. So the the lineup is, they're six-piece. Uh, Ross Jennings is just the vocalist. Then we have... Richard Henschel uh, on guitar and keyboards live, he does both. So we have an interesting thing there as well where, like, some songs are more guitar-focused, some are more keyboard-focused. Charles Griffith playing guitar as well. Diego Tadeja playing keyboards, so two keyboard players or two guitarists, depending on which bit of the song. Bass player Tom McLean and drummer Ray Herman, who I think is literally only on this album. Incredible drummer, though. He hasn't done a lot else since. So they were formed from Tom and Richard both came from Tomira, who are kind of an interesting female-fronted progressive metal band. they I, I don't find them quite as exciting as Haken, but they're definitely worth a look. The overall style of this album is 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 a bit of a departure actually if you listen to their newer stuff. They hadn't and I think it's because this is a bit before that point, they hadn't embraced that kind of genty 8-string guitar thing just yet. So the riffs aren't quite as like that massive low open a chug you get in a lot of that kind of music the album starts with the point of no return which is this really great build between these big atmospheric like keyboard and piano passages into these more riffy elements and it has like a breakdown in the middle that goes all kinds of weird with each member of the band doing a mini solo section so there'd be, i think it's like guitar solo keyboard solo bass solo drum solo but it's like they get a bar each to shred and like repeat that for a bit and you get some fantastically fancy bass work in that and like the keyboards go just off the map weird uh ross's vocal performance is bizarre like his choice of Vocal melody is really really unique throughout this and I think some people I spoke to found him quite off-putting Some people compared his vocals to sounding a bit like Kermit the Frog Hence the video for the Cockroach King that came out many years later where the band were rendered as Muppets um, The drum work again much like enslaved is the real kind of center point of this of being super inventive full of really fancy fills and just great grooves and just really locking down this immensely complex beast that is is Haken. Also, there, there's these kind of fun departures as well where there was something super heavy. Because Ross has actually got a solid death metal scream. So, like, in the middle of Screams, the second track, the, the song starts so kind of joyous and just completely stupid cheesy and then then this really like dark humor passage happens and he does this really brutal scream over it and then it returns to the kind of the cheesiness Um we get songs like Aquarium which is like the slow really gentle build into this really big fancy solo section in the middle which uh, my sister wants to describe the solos as being written in the scale of cheese because I think they just essentially keep changing up key every time round, and it gets more and more silly and over the top, but it's such flashy guitar work as well, it's it really brings a smile to the face. In the middle of the album we have Eternal Rain, which I don't know if it ever was, but would be the obvious single of the album, it's like, it's under seven minutes, and it's far more kind of first chorus, and then cool, middle, instrumental section. Then we get Drowning in the Flood, which is kind of a nod to where they might end up like with their sound of it, it's far more kind of low chugging riffs. Like there's loads of kind of, it's more of this heavy groove, which would probably sound better if played on eight strings, which I don't think they were using at this point in time. Um, and then that that gives way to a a long solo, you using the band's namesake, the Haken Continuum fingerboard, which. I don't know if it was invented by, but I think Dream Theater's keyboard player, Jordan Rudess, uses one of these, where it's like, a, it's like a keyboard with no keys, it's just like a, a kind of flat touchscreen, essentially, so you can slide along it and, like, essentially slide like you could on a fretless bass or fretless guitar, and it it's a weird sound, but then you do this thing they did, and they did this on the demo for one track, much like uh, Dream Theater's Pull Me Under cuts to nothing suddenly, that song suddenly cuts to nothing. And much like Pull Me Under, it's really annoying. Like, I don't get why any band would do this. Like, the the harsh cut, just, even when you know it's coming, doesn't sound nice. But then, we build up through the next track, Sun, which has these gentle, melodic kind of guitar opening, and a, and a lead fretless bass. And it's kind of, the the, the bass lead, is a sad. It's really, it's a melancholy bass solo. It's, kind of incredible um and that's like the really kind of ballady track of the album but I, I think works and then we get the closer the 17 minute long the celestial elixir there's a there's great video actually of the band with this lineup playing it in full at prog power in like 2012 it is such a complex beast of a song. It's like 4 minutes before any vocals comes in and it moves through like atmospheric keyboard driven stuff to like really heavy riffing bits to like circus music at one point, all complex and all over the place and it has like this amazing build and it's like a really big emotional payoff at the end. We get something that will become a bit of a um Haken staple in the future of to really add Weight and power to the final riffs of an album. They um, introduce trumpets and trombone, um, clarinet and flute and stuff just to just to flesh out the sound. They don't do anything that fancy, it just but it just makes it all like sound a bit bigger. Um, particularly the track "Somebody Off of uh, the Mountain" later uses this to perfect effect. But you can see the genesis of this here. I think personally. I might rate The Mountain as a slightly better album to Aquarius, but Aquarius is this brilliant full piece of prog metal, progressive metal. It's not prog power, actually. I was going to say prog power, but I think that's wrong. It's just just a true progressive metal album. And I think it's really... It's a perfect album if you're someone like myself who thought Dream Theater's Images and Words was amazing, and want a band to kind of capture that again. like It's far more that than Dream Theater have ever managed since. Or And... and and the myriad Dream Theatre clones have ever managed since. I think Haken really are the best band who were in like at this point in that vein of bands aping Dream Theatre but trying to do something a bit different with it. Since then they've completely moved. If you look at their latest album Vector is totally detached from that kind of idea, but in their early days, definitely influenced by that early progressive metal sound. And but they've really highlighted the genre. realized that uh that second guitar solo and that song the kind of trade back and forth is actually a fugue which is cool you don't hear that too often in metal so number five in this list um is one i think many of you would say probably the absolute defining album of the year and it needs it's fucking incredible like honestly within in these last few these are all monumental albums this is Watane's fourth full-length lawless darkness released on seasons of mist So when this album came out, Watain had been going for quite a long time. They were a well-established force in metal. Um, Their previous album, Sworn to Dark, was a proper game-changer when it came out. I think the first two, it's not quite as successful. So they formed about 98. This is their fourth album. And the change between this and the previous album alone is huge. The band had just evolved their sound so much into what is very complex but yet still very accessible. So Watane in terms of black metal really took off where dissection left off. They've run with that kind of somber lane sound, that kind of very melodic Swedish tone. There's something about the way Sweden does black metal versus how Norway does it. It's just very different. Like they're highly lead guitar based, like there's a lot of really cool, simplistic, catchy lead sections. So Watane basically always been a core of the same three guys doing pretty much everything uh eric danielson leading them on bass and vocals although actually the stage names are just e h on drums and p on guitars um and what they do is this really accessible but still epic sounding thing like they're very riffy as a band like really catchy the vocals are very clear and audible but still harsh and with a real attack to them their whole presentation is beautiful like the album cover is this amazing like dark spiral of like kind of it looks like almost hand-drawn kind of work but it's really almost hard to look at complex image of chaos the and and the the lyric booklet is filled with more and more kind of cool Additional imagery is definitely one that would be cool to get a giant vinyl of, um, and the the album moves between like basically really almost like mosh parts, like kind of th- this is this is not a black metal band that if you saw live you kind of stand at the back and be like oh yeah yeah that's cool. This is a band where you'd be you know you'd want to be at the front like really participating in a pretty like violent over the top gig. And if, if any of you have seen what I'm saying live like. They really inspire this kind of thing like to, to my mind especially at the times sort of I, I saw them alive around this point for the first time they kind of felt in many ways like a less ridiculous behemoth because they had the kind of over-the-top stage imagery where like they were wearing the corpse paint but they changed that up a bit like incorporating like blood and all all their all their clothes rather than being the standard uniform of spikes with these cool kind of like ripped leather jackets and so on um, Eric has an incredible presence as a front man, because although he's bass and vocals on the studio recording live, he's just the vocalist, and they get an additional bass player and live guitarist and to help them out. Um, and the, then it's just candles everywhere. Like, the you, you know, you go to a Wattain gig, and it's it's hot. There's so much kind of fire on stage. It, it's just a very epic, atmospheric show. And for some reason, they just, they've hit it just right that it doesn't teeter over into stupidity. This album, in in duration alone, is completely epic. It's ten tracks, almost seventy minutes. It's actually longer than that bloody Haken concept album before, like we were talking about before. So, doing that while I'm still making like melodic, accessible black metal is incredible. The 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 lyrics are really engaging. There's a lot of kind of like almost mantra-like repeated parts to them. Lots of like shout-along choruses. Uh, there these moments of real melodic beauty and then things that build into kind of explosions of fury there's there's um definite reverence for old heavy metal in here in a lot of places um and actually old goth in some places to the point where we have a very brief guest vocal section from Carl McCoy of Fields of the Nephilim um on the final track Waters of Ain. i'd say like real highlights of this album are um Malathetor, uh, track two, which is this great kind of... After Death's Cold Dark, which is this really brutal, in-your-face track, this is a more drawn-out, very lead guitar-driven, more catchy, introspective song. Um, there's the instrumental Lawless Darkness, which like goes all over the place and features a guest solo from SL of The Devil's Blood, who sadly uh, killed himself not long after this. The Devil's Blood were released there. Um, full-length 1000 volt Epicenter, which we've covered before, soon after this. And the, those two bands are very interlinked, despite the kind of difference in genre. And also, like, so the way this album ends is utterly incredible. So after all these kind of, like, kind of, you know, five to seven-minute-long black metal uh, tracks, we get the epic Waters of Ain, which is a it's almost 15 minutes long. It's this giant build-up. It starts really gently with just clean tone guitar, then moves through a lot of black-metally movements, and kind of switches back and forth between more melodic moments into more brutal moments. But essentially, this whole song just builds up to this massive, like, four-minute-long guitar solo by SL, where he just like, lets loose in this beautiful, melodic way. They do great stuff as well, where rather than, you know, blasting the whole way through it, the drummer gets more intense as it goes on. It's a great bit halfway through the solo with a double kick suddenly coming to the fore, and it just makes, it makes the guitar sound more impressive when it hasn't actually changed up all that much. And I just love the idea of doing an album where it's essentially all a build to this final, monumental moment. There's, there's just a lot a lot to love about this album. It's pretty much great the whole way through, which, essentially, for 75 minutes of attempting to do catchy riffing is mind-blowing. They can keep it up at that level throughout. Sadly, I don't think the two follow-ups have anywhere near lived up to this. Like, while the next album has some really interesting moments, like They Rode On is a good example, the, the flow of it was just fucking weird, where it just go from heavy to light with no no rhyme or reason whereas this the flow of it is almost perfect and yeah they, they've they almost kind of jumped the shark into being slightly ridiculous and self-parody much like behemoth kind of headed towards i guess just when this kind of gets popular it's hard not to but overall it's incredible the tone is amazing it has that feel of those old dissection albums where they just sound fucking beautiful throughout um yeah, and I think this is this is clearly a point where a band had just really worked out what they were doing. Like all three members have been with the project for a very like pretty much since its inception. I think all three of them still are with it. So just they're just focused and just near black metal perfection. An album by alcest uh, "Eclairs de lune which i i think in terms of metal history deserves a big place like this was an album that really pushed that post black metal kind of sound to the fore and i think the one that really got alcest their name although the first album was very good like this is the one where they just nailed that sound and I, it's, it's an absolute masterpiece that still holds up very well But I've talked about that enough on like two episodes back or something like that when I did the French black metal scene. So, album number three, unfortunately, sorry, yet more black metal. But, you know, a departure from a lot of that kind of sound. Um, This is Ishan's third solo album after, released on Candlelight Records. Uh, Ishan started doing the solo work in 2005 um, after he finished up with Peckerton, his kind of odd avant garde project with his wife doing a lot of like clean vocals with Ishan's solo stuff it didn't start that strongly I'd argue although there are some who love the first album the first album has a lot more kind of like King Diamond worship and he's in in that kind of very old school black metal vein Um, then the second album Angel changed things up got more progressive and more complex after changes up again because there's a lot more focus on atmosphere and the huge introduction on this album. And I think I think this is the album that's the proper game changer in terms of this. We get Jürgen Munkerby of the Norwegian band Shining playing sax on about five tracks throughout this album. And it's a lot of different sax work. And it it really sold me on it. I think this is the album where I went oh, this can really work in metal. So it's another Jens Brogren mixing mastering job with Ishan doing producer and engineering work. With Ishan's solo stuff, it really is solo project. Like, although he's got um, a Skier Mikkelsen on drums and Lars K. Norberg on bass, both of the bands Spiral Architect, um, adding a bit more, he's just doing vocals, guitar, keyboards, piano, you know, et cetera, on that front. It's very much him working out exactly what he wants to do in studio. Like I don't believe there's a lot of other input other than the guest Jurgen on saxophone who I believe was pretty much given free reign to improvise over the sections where Ishaon wanted him to play. The sound of this album is tending towards what I hinted at where Haken were gonna go with that kind of that eight string kind of genty um thick massive guitar tone although i'm not entirely sure if this was was recorded on one of those like sugar style guitars yet it it has that kind of huge chunk to it and this doesn't like the the kind of departure with ishan away from kind of the old black metal trappings is this kind of very bright clean and clear production there's a lot in this album which is immensely atmospheric um Tracks like After or On the Shores are very kind of introspective and sad. Like, there's a just a lot of very bleak emotions in there. Even Frozen Lakes on Mars has a lot of this as well. But then we get absolutely crazy moments like A Grave Inverted, or Grave Inverse, sorry, which is really fast and all over the place with Jurgen adding this bizarre, like, um, avant garde saxophone work over the top of it. Really shredding guitar still, like, Ishan's guitar solos on this album are really impressive. Although, I've heard it said in interviews, Ishan really doesn't rate himself as a guitarist, he, he really is. Like, the guy is an immense uh, player. His vocals are incredible, If you know, most of you used to him by now, but his, like, high-pitched, very memorable scream is in there a lot, but also does a lot of his clean vocals, and what we've seen through his solo work is his voice is getting better and better Also, I like that he relies on having a bass player and drummer rather than trying to, say, record the bass himself, because you look at Empress Prometheus, he did the bass for that, and it's just kind of non-existent. Whereas Lars on the bass in this album, I think he plays a fretless throughout, and it adds these really interesting little textures. Although he's not high in the mix, there's just little moments where he does stuff, like the odd harmonic note or something that cuts through, and it just sounds really, really big, and just something else there. The drum performance is incredible. So many of the riffs are really brilliant on this album, like, Barren Lands and Frozen Lakes on Mars are, like, both kind of live staples for this project, although at this point in time I think he'd only just started performing live, um, I think he was taking out basically the entirety of the band Leprous as his backing band, that was before they, they sort of took off with their third album, Coal, um, there's also a really fun thing with this. of There's a bonus DVD, which clearly was label-driven, where they're like, oh, let's do a studio video. And <laughs> the start of the DVD comes up with a message saying, warning, this episode features absolutely no excitement, enthusiasm, or action of any kind. Welcome to the world of a solo artist. And then it is like five minutes of footage of yves John just sat in front of his computer playing a guitar riff to a click track over and over again until he gets it right. I <laughs> think this is a really incredible. sort of It, it does show just how much of a kind of studio project this was like how this was just ishan sat at home trying to work something out trying to create something new and i I think he did here i think this unfortunately i don't think any ishan album following this has quite reached the highest of after because i'd say after start to finish everything's great on it like all the tracks are really solid songs whereas The follow-up album is just more of the same but doesn't work quite as well. Then you've got the improvised album, or partially improvised album after that, which has some real great moments but is a bit patchy. And then the most recent two are both fine but I found quite forgettable after initially enjoying them. Whereas this, after, has stuck with me since day one. Angel before it I also really rate and do regularly revisit. But there's sort of... Particularly with after, there are moments of absolute brilliance. The title track is melodic and excellent, but then the real, the real kind of centre of this is the ten-minute epic on the shores at the end, which starts gently with a lot. It's got sax pretty much the whole way through it, but it seems to really build to this this big, like crushing, almost death metal riff in the middle of the album. And it just like when that comes in, much like uh, with triplicons, the prolonging, you're just like, oh, this was the payoff I wanted. This is so good. And then that eventually gives way to more sax work. And the album eventually just fades to just Jurgen playing like a sax outro to the whole thing. Because each one was saying, like in interviews around this time, that he felt the saxophone was a very solitary instrument. He liked the sound of it just by itself and he's used it to great effect here and Jürgen is a hugely trained musician like very brilliant multi-instrumentalist and was definitely the person to bring saxophone into metal like I I don't think there was any like I don't think many other people could have done it quite as well as he <laughs> for ages over making number one. This is the 10th studio album of the band, Ross and Christ, a uh, Greek-based band. Uh, the album is Aleo, released on Seasons of Mist. This, um, this album was, it felt like a culmination of things for Ross Christ. Like They had been going this direction for quite some time in their albums. So for a bit of history, they started out in 1987, Like. They have been going since forever. As almost like a grind band for their first couple of demos. Then released two albums of quite traditional black metal. Very, very good, though. Like, absolute classics. And then sort of really started to experiment and throw more things in the mix. They had albums that tended towards, like, gothic music, almost. Um, a lot of tendencies towards melodic death metal. Uh, just lots of experimentation. But most of the albums in the middle, Genesis, A Dead Poem etc. While they had great bits, they were never quite there. They, there was something just, there's songs I really like, but I wouldn't say any of them's truly brilliant. But then Helio comes out, and it's, it's just incredible. It, utterly, I was blown away from the first seconds of it. I remember coming across this when it came out, and just I just couldn't believe the evolution in their sound. I couldn't believe what they'd done. So genre Rise, this is really hard to place. So, like I can't, I can't tell you whether it's melodic black metal, melodic death metal, maybe something in the middle between those two. It's just, it is a very melodic album, but still very epic and just there's so much going on here, but without really running away with like the technicality or anything like that. So the core of Rossing Christ has always been Sakis Tollis on vocals on this album, Vocals, Guitars, Keyboard, main songwriter, and his brother, Femis, uh, on drums. Also bass player Andreas Ligeos on bass. He he's not with the band that long though, although not long after this thing like about 2014, they stabilised with their current like live band of additional guitarists and bass player who have remained with them to this day. So this album, I don't know what makes it quite so different. I think there's an embracing of like Greek folk influence, which sort of just gives it a sound you've n- I've never quite heard before. Like there's these backing clean like female choir or vocals um, straight away on the first track, Alio. But then the other thing Ross and Christ do that is so kind of memorable is these repeating little guitar leads like just, just tiny you know like sort of 10 note little repeating passages but they'll build the other instruments around these repeating passages and it, there's just something about it. it becomes so hypnotic the vocals are often like quite small phrases just repeating things um often not in english but that doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to affect it at all uh, the other thing i really like with Salman somehow they reproduce this live but i'm not quite sure i never analyse it enough is... There seems to be like... Like four or five layers of different guitar parts... On a lot of songs... Like say Noctis Era... One of the real um, famous tracks from this album... Sort of as it builds... Like there's a repeating guitar riff that keeps going... And then that'll be there... Then there'll be another lead part over it... But then a rhythm part underneath... And then a further lead part will come in... And all four will be going at once... With the vocals as well... And just... But never sounding chaotic... Always just sounds epic and atmospheric... Like these these songs are just beautiful. The production is exactly what this album needed as well. Like it's it's not too clean. It doesn't sound it kind of still has a slightly live feel despite the kind of constant layering. Um his vocal performance is really cool. He his his like main growl is it is fairly traditional, kind of standard enough growl, but he does a lot of other things and like something they become more of a staple, particularly with their their album Rituals coming up like uh in like twenty sixteen, something like that. Um he's doing more of these like gang vocal chanting parts in our live they sort of both the guitarist and bass player add additional vocals and there's lots of these multi-layered vocals. But as I say, never sounding chaotic, never sounding over the top. There's um, sort of a really cool moment towards the end of the album with Thou Art Lord where um, Primordial's vocalist does some additional vocals and that uh, just adding a layer of like cool, clean singing over like a slower building track. But then we get more blasting kind of chaos with like the track after that, Santa Maria, is just yeah, like blast beats start to finish, but still catchy. Same is true of like um, Fire, Death and Fear is like kind of very blasty, but still catchy. And there's a lot of that kind of almost sepulchery like tribal drumming where like the riff will be based around just this kind of cool drum groove like rolling around the toms. It's done in quite a few tracks. Uh, A couple of others where I just cannot say the name because it's not even character sets, I know. But I I love how this doesn't... Nothing detracts from the catchiness. Nothing detracts from the accessibility, even when a lot of it's not in a language I understand. The album closes with a bizarre idea that some, I think, would find sacrilegious, but others not, like... um, Personally, I love it, but then I didn't know the original. There's a Damanda Glass track called Orders from the Dead, which is like this nine-minute long, like, half-sung, half-spoken word, like, a cappella piece. This really emotionally powerful kind of um, very graphic, gory poem about um remembering the dead who have suffered for their cause and or those that have you know been wrongly persecuted, and what Rotten Christ has done is they've taken that and written a full backing melody to this nine minutes like that rises and falls at the perfect moment, adds additional melodies and like tribal rhythms in places it's it's so fucking good and it, it still sort of packs the emotional punch of the original like, this is a really affecting song and, but the album builds it as well the album is affecting in that way too um something i wanted to touch on with Rotting christ as well because i've heard this mentioned a few times like their new albums just come out so they're kind of being talked about once again is a lot of people have been saying that the name of the band is quite inflammatory and i think i'm missing like uh, and apologies if this is stating the blindingly obvious but i think a lot of them are missing the wordplay of like Rotting christ is not just a kind of uh, Jesus is dead. Kind of metaphor. It's a it's a, it's a metaphor for the fact the church is in decay. The kind of the, the fact that yeah the the sort of Christian hold on Europe and so on is is slowly waning to some extent. And I actually think it's one of the better metal band names. Obviously um, helped by the fact that it really pissed off Dave Mustaine once when he got some kicked off of a festival bill, which you know. At this stage, it only makes you more metal. But yeah, Elio really is this just perfect culmination of loads of elements Rotten Christ has been pursuing for years. And then the follow-up, Kata, blah, 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 Um, I can't remember the full title, Um, is more in this vein and is really good. Rituals then sort of strips things back and becomes more chanty and like an attempt to kind of capture a more memorable element. And both are good albums, but... They, I I'd be surprised if Rotten Cross ever quite hit the heights of Elio again. That doesn't matter though because they are still one of the best live bands I've ever come across. They they are so arch professional. Like they play these songs like note perfect while all like circle headbanging in time and they they can move between all elements of their well now thirteen album, maybe fourteen at this point, back catalogue, um, and it just all smoothly flows together like highly recommend checking this band out live that's like that's the way to get into them but if you can't if you don't have the option of that definitely start with alio cuz it's incredible
1: La saldera, the fire, the fire, the fire, the fire, fire, the governor, the 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 the
0: What could be better than Rotting Christ's, probably, career highlight, Watain's career highlight, maybe even Elsa's career highlight? Well, in my humble opinion, and many of you will pretty deeply disagree with this, many of you probably have never even heard this one, but my number one album of 2010 is the Norwegian band Shining's Black Jazz, uh, released on indie recordings. So we mentioned Jürgen earlier um, performing sax on eshon's After, Here is Jürgen's own band doing something truly, truly unique. So, Shining, for a bit of backstory, not to be confused with the Swedish suicidal black metal Shining, this Norwegian Shining was formed in 1999 as an acoustic jazz four-piece by a young Jürgen like straight out of Music College. He's a mad multi-instrumentalist type. And Shining went through a lot of evolutions, like... um, on the on their fourth album grindstone the one before this they kind of morphed into this sort of electronic influence kind of there's moments of like industrial stuff there is guitar-y bits on it um but there like, is a lot of a lot of like a lot of jazz stuff but then a lot of like weird electronica kind of stuff and then lots of interesting keyboard work for the fifth album the band completely shifted what they are doing. Jurgen moves to playing guitar and doing vocals as well as saxophone. The old albums have little to no vocals. He recruits an additional guitarist, bass player, keyboard synthesizer, and then the drummer, uh, Torstein Lofthus, who has been with the band, like, I think this is his last album with the band, but been with the band for a long time up at this point, and became this proper live, like, five piece heavy metal band. Um, not long before this, they had done this very... I can't find any recordings or anything of it, but this um, collaborative project with Enslaved, where they'd done this almost kind of like... They'd sort of written some very strange music to perform as a live, like, ten-piece band, um, and a lot of elements of black jazz came out of those performances. I think they only did, like, eight or nine shows, and I don't know too much about them, but it's just its something I really would have loved to have seen. Um, This album even actually features, on two of the tracks, guest vocals from Girtle of Enslaved. Um, So the sound of black jazz is this utter fuzzed-out, impossible-to-comprehend nightmare. Essentially, it's based around... It's a lot of really riffy music. Like The album kicks off straight away with Madness and the Damage Done with these immensely catchy riffs. But because everything is so fuzzed-out and crazy... And like there's always dissonant elements thrown in. What should be catchy riffs become like mind melting. Like there's just just horror laden all over this. This is a this is a terrifying album. It is really scary. And when I say fuzzy, like there is so much distortion on everything bar the drums. Like the vocals are this hyper distorted, like nightmare. I don't know quite what's going on with it, because um I've seen like live videos of it. Jurgen has this strange like additional thing attached to his mic which i think is almost like a like an echo chamber to naturally reverb it's crazy like the sound he gets out of his vocals are completely bizarre and like the saxophone is very much like a like an additional occasional instrument so with madness and the damage done it's, it's this five piece like riff fest and then fisheye the next track kind of not quite as obviously riffy, but still got a lot of that going on. It's just more guitar driven stuff. And then suddenly, halfway through the album, halfway through the song, you think you're going to get another kind of cool guitar lead, like you get the ridiculous guitar lead in Madison and the Damage Done. And then halfway through that, suddenly saxophone. And if you watch live videos, it's super cool because often they'll set this up where the camera will pan to one of the guitarists and Jurgen will just slightly disappear off stage. Drop his guitar and then just reappear with sax in hand. He's a cool-looking guy as well. He's quite a small, like a small, skinny guy. He has this like slick back hair, aviator sunglasses, and just the stage presence of some kind of mad genius. Like the, they these are again just a band to see live because their music is so original and so weird. And Jürgen is such a powerful presence on stage, and he really leads this album from the forefront. Like. Although his vocals are not throughout the album, where like where they are are really front and center. The drum performance is insane. Like the the start of Exit Sun, the third like eight minute long track, it's basically a three minute long drum solo, and it's so groovy and so memorable. Essentially, as well, Exit Sun, it sounds like Muse riffs. Like it, one of the riffs, and it really reminds me of Muse's hyper music from Origins of Symmetry, but. With this added layer of fuzz, and then in the middle, it all goes, um, if you know Circle of the Psy-Squatch by Mastodon from Blood Mountain, where it starts with one of the catchiest riffs of the album, and then in the middle, you just get these fuzzed out, like, laser beam vocals. This happens in this to an even more extreme thing. Like, the guitars change this slow-paced chugging, like, dun-dun-dun kind of riff with weird little keyboard effects and sporadic bursts of distorted noise. And then the vocals are just these, just Jürgen hitting these bizarre high notes with so much distortion and feedback going on. And this goes on for about three minutes. And then suddenly the song just kicks back into these groovy, all like muse through a portal to hell riffs. Um, the The track afterwards, Helter Skelter, is completely just deranged. And then, then we get uh, like one of the continuing strange facets of this album of there's two tracks on it called Exit Sun and two tracks called Madness and the Damage Done. So track six is essentially Madness and the Damage Done Part 2, which starts off with kind of a melodic keyboard version of the like original riffs. And eventually, after like, this long kind of melodic keyboard passage, just builds up to the chorus from the first track halfway through the album. It It's... Yes, is out there for the sake of being out there, but I don't think in essence that's a problem. Like this album's mad and unsettling, and it's meant to be this hellish. You will not predict what's going to happen next, kind of thing. And talking of that, we get to track seven, Black Jazz Death Trance, which is an impossible to describe song. This is the saxophone comes much more to the fore in this one. And structurally, I could not tell, I've heard this song a hundred times and I could not tell you what happens in it. It is utter madness and, and beautiful. Like, and what's really brilliant is there's is a live DVD released next, like 2011, which, in which the band plays the entirety of this album. So despite the weirdness, despite the complexity, this band can do this live. It's incredible. So track eight is Omen, which is the most kind of reminiscent of the previous album, Grindstone. It has kind of the more atmospheric kind of electronic elements. And then as a closer, and I fucking love this, they cover King Crimson's I think 1969 classic 21st century schizoid man with Girtle from Enslaved doing the vocals, but Girtle hyper distorted. So it's just this booming bass distortion voice singing those kind of classic lyrics. And They don't cover it straight up. They make it hellish. It's all detuned. It's more improvised. There's so much more random noises going, going through it. And while in the original there's not a huge amount of vocals... There's quite a lot of space for the instrumental sections. In a lot of the gaps, Gertl is just doing... These hideous screams over everything. It is so brutal. And when it breaks down into that... Like... Completely experimental instrumental section from the original things just go off the map. It gets utterly crazy, and, like, you wouldn't tell this was a band, like, throwing together whatever crazed idea they had in the studio. And actually just became a live staple for them for quite a while, which I really like. But they've taken what... Because Robert Fripp uh, of King Crimson has described this as a heavy metal song. And seeing King Crimson play it live earlier last year, I completely agree, this is a metal song. So this is a band taking one of the original metal songs, basically. You know, that this album in the court of the Crimson King, was released before Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. And taking that and making it a metal song that is too intense for a lot of metalheads in 2010 is quite an incredible feat. And then just the whole thing just falls apart in a beautifully disgusting manner. This album is a sledgehammer of an album. Unfortunately, it's very much, they couldn't do this again. On the follow-up, 1-1-1, they, they kind of... Stripped the songs down a bit, they became more kind of rocky and they've gone for that more kind of five minute verse chorusy structure. The follow up, um, International Black Jazz Society, even more so. And then for their latest album, Animal, they've kind of morphed into a hard rock band. But with this one, there's something so unique, so out there. The, the lyrics are very much, I think, based in, like, kind of Alistair Crowley-style philosophy. Lots of strange repeating lines. Like, Fisheye, for example, is just, like, all these different voices chanting 1375, which becomes, like... So it starts off with Jürgen doing it in a slightly distorted voice, and there's, like... I think a female vocalist saying it, like, who sounds utterly terrified, and then the song builds up to more intensity, and it, it's just unsettling. It's a horrible... But brilliant album, really, really quite incredible, and I, I think justified of like the top spot in what I would. So, yeah, top spot of the year two thousand and ten, in terms of what we're looking at here of like the the kind of each of these these shows of one per year of the decade. Currently, my feeling is 2010 is going to be the year to be. I've done a bit of research on 11 and 12, and neither are looking quite as strong as this. My my prediction is this is a monumental year in metal, where so much was invented and changed. We'll we'll see how it goes, though. I, I have a feeling 2014 was really good as well, but we, we'll see we'll see what it ends up like. But Black Jazz, I think, is. An absolute masterpiece and worthy of being up there. But as I say, pretty much anything in this top fifteen, give a go because these are all really out there, incredible albums, really mastering their craft. And and get in touch with us, like let us know what I've missed because there's so much good stuff from 2010. There's albums I love that I probably haven't spoken about at all, just for sheer factor of time. I mean, we've already hit about two hours at this stage, so here's up. at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. If you want to email Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail dot com, you know just just let me know. Let let me know what you've enjoyed from this this year, and actually just hit us up as well. we because we've got nine more shows of great stuff. Like cover, there's going to be so many albums I've forgotten or have just missed. Let me know a great album you like, something you rate as your absolute best of like 2014, 2015, like. There's so much good stuff out there. Just just hit us up, get in touch, and let us know what you think. And if you if you've got if you're listening to this through iTunes, please leave us a review there. Apparently that helps our uh, hopes our like overall rating, so other people can find the podcast. Or you know just mention it to your friends. If if I cover an album, you know, a friend's obsessed with, get them to listen to it, and then they can message me and tell me <laughs> what facts I got wrong about it. But anyway, so. I'll leave you with a little clip of something from Black Jazz.